welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Also, just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we're doing it in the studio. So our apologies there. But uh, as I've said many times, we wanted to continue with the programming, even with COVID-19, making it um, making us change a few things around in what we actually do. But the good news is we can still do it. So I'm very excited. Now, today I'd like to introduce you to Siobhan Spearin, who is doing a PhD in environmental studies under the supervision of Dr. Alice Havolka. Welcome to Grad Chat, Siobhan. Thank you. I, I was getting lost in the poetry of your words there for a second. I, forgot. I thought I was listening to like the radio live. <laughs> well, of course you are. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm just part of it this time. <laughs> You're just part of it. And, and, and you know, it's an actual absolute privilege to have Siobhan on, on the show because I've been asking her on a number of occasions to, to come on the show. And I seem to do that to quite a few students, which I do apologize to them. Only somewhat. No, it's great. <laughs> and it was actually, I think it was uh, one of the first writing camps that Siobhan was on when I said, you know, have you ever thought about doing this? And Siobhan said, yes, yes, I will do it. And then the next, next session was, have you thought about coming on grad chat? Yes, Colette, I will do it. <laughs> and so you know what? I, 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 <laughs> I've slowly climbed out. Of, I'm I'm climbing out of, I guess, in the process of like the imposter syndrome. So I'm like, right. oh, what? like maybe I've given Colette the impression I know things when, you know, when I'm a first year PhD and second year, I'm like, oh, I don't know anything at all. Um, so which I still sometimes feel like, but I'm, I'm slowly climbing out of the, the impostery hole. And yeah, it was so excited to do this podcast. Finally. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. And you mean, that's a big thing that happens in grad studies for those people that don't know is this imposter syndrome of thinking mm -hmm. you, know, you, you don't know enough. In fact, our grad students, by the time they finish their research, you, they are the experts in the area because they've been fine-tuning and, and getting in-depth into what it's all about. So you should never um, put yourselves down because you've got a lot to offer and explain to all of us mm -hmm. so that we can understand it. So I'm glad you came on. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to bug you for next time at the next writing camp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll come up with something creative. <laughs> I, I will. I will. So I guess we should get on because, as usual, I've been rambling again. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but the, one of the reasons I wanted Siobhan to come on to the show is because, um, like I say, um, a lot of times, you know, our, the research that our students are doing is absolutely fascinating. But then she started talking about monkeys. And if you haven't guessed it, I love animals. <laughs> and so I had to find out more about what she meant by she works with monkeys. And so Siobhan's research topic is the lives of monkeys in Costa Rican sanctuaries. So how about you give us a bit of an overview? What do you mean by that, Siobhan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I became interested in Costa Rican monkeys uh, after I graduated undergrad. I did a field course in uh, primate uh, conservation. 
at, uh, well, with the uh, DANTA, which is an association for uh, conservation of the tropics. And so I was kind of thrust into the thick of the jungle for two weeks, watching primates and seeing them in the wild. And for me, that was, it was just an incredible experience. I'd grown up wanting to be, you know, Jane Goodall, like so many other, I guess, (laughs) people who study primates and even zoologists. So my background was zoology. And so going on this field course was a really great experience for me, but it also taught me that I don't think I wanted to be in the thick of the jungle, following them with binoculars. Just the physical conditions of it was really, really difficult. And I realized that I became, I was actually more interested in human-animal relations, which is something that I really only fully understood in my PhD as I've transitioned into sort of semi-social sciences because my supervisor, Alice Havorka, is an animal geographer. And my mind was opened to the different ways of knowing and studying animals that were completely different from what I had learned in my zoology undergrad. So going into Costa Rica in terms of studying primates, I was interested in everything. They've been studied a lot in Costa Rica in terms of their like ecology and, and their wild populations. There's been studies going on for decades and decades. But I haven't found anything published on the actual sanctuaries and rehabilitation of primates there. So there's four species of monkeys in Costa Rica, capuchin monkeys, which most people will probably know because they're like the organ grinder monkey. Um, They're often in TV and uh, have been used as like pets. They're very common. There's also squirrel monkeys who are their smaller kind of counterparts. And then you've got howler monkeys and spider monkeys. So those are the four species. And I was just interested in everything to do with their their welfare in captivity because the only uh, it's illegal to own uh, wild animals as pets in Costa Rica. They have very strict environmental laws. You can't That's have good. like, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. You can't have like birds or reptiles or anything. It's illegal to feed and touch wildlife. It's It's very strict. So in reality, the only way to see captive wild animals are to go to sanctuaries and rescue centers, which are slightly different in that sanctuaries are more like typical zoos where you can like view exhibited wildlife that can't be released. And then rescue centers are responsible for releasing and rehabilitating wildlife. But many of these sites that I go to, including the ones I spent the most time at, actually have both the license to be operating as like a zoo as well as a rescue center. So they're taking in animals and if the animal can be rehabilitated and released, they'll keep it separate from where visitors and tourists are. They're usually only interacted with by maybe like a veterinarian or a vet assistant, and then they're released. So they they don't want to habituate the monkeys or the animals to humans. And the ones that can't be released because they're maybe severely disabled or injured or they were formerly pets and they are just too friendly to humans, they aren't fearful of humans or urban areas, they will often stay in the sanctuary as like the zoo animals that you'll actually see when you go um, on a tour. So if you're a visitor in Costa Rica, you're seeing the animals that cannot be released. Thank you for that. There's a number of questions that come (laughs) for me, several actually. So before I get into some other more nitty gritty questions, Mm -hmm. You said uh, Dr. Havorka is a an animal geographer. Is yes, that the word you used. <laughs> yeah. So, so with with uh, Dr. Havorka being your supervisor, was the reason you went through environmental studies as opposed to geography? Yes. So I had actually 
been uh, bugging Dr. Havorka for years. <laughs> he had been my master. So we both came from the University of Guelph, formerly, gotcha. and we were both a part of an animal welfare association on campus. I was doing work with animal biosciences, and I was like a research assistant to doctoral students doing like any work to build my CV and build my experience. Um, and she was one of the only faculty listed the in, in the association, the welfare association, that were working with like studied wild animals and studied animals in situ. Most of the animals that were at Guelph, which is famous for the agricultural and vet school, were domesticated. And I wanted to work with wild animals. And of course, like as a as an undergrad, when I was first kind of reaching out to to Alice, um, she uh, she was in geography, and I thought, oh my god, I've never taken a social science before. I've never taken geography. <laughs> I was so. I was so scared of like what I thought was like the rigidity of disciplines, which now is like crazy to me. And I wish I could kind of go back and shake myself being like, it doesn't matter. You can change disciplines. But I was yes. so I guess I was so intimidated by like essentially doing a graduate degree in a social science, which I had felt I had no background in. So right. when so she that's where the cross disciplinary stuff comes in now. Exactly. Now I'm like, oh, it's a strength. It's not, you know, it's it's something that I, sorry, that's my cat meowing. <laughs> sorry about that. Ambient noise. Yeah, it's it's something that is actually encouraged now. And now that I, as I like move uh, up, or at least I stay longer in like academia, I see that there is this transition towards interdisciplinary research. And it's like a valuable thing. But as a, you know, and it's only really, what, six or seven years ago, my entire mentality was so different. I thought that my background looked like undesirable because I had a, a degree in English, a degree in zoology that I looked unfocused. And now it makes perfect sense to me, my path. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. And <laughs> you've clearly got yourself the right supervisor. And, and some people don't realize you don't necessarily choose a program because that's the program, like you, like you said, that's the program you think you should be in. You should be choosing it of who can supervise you. And there's a lot of um, supervision that crosses discipline. So uh, exactly. that, that's good that you've done that. I guess the other question, well, there's a couple more questions I want to say is, why did you pick Costa Rica? Is it because it's it's a novel place that the way that they're doing this because of their environmental laws? Mm-hmm. So I had um, the f- my first year, uh, which was 2017 in my PhD, I had come into like Queens, the program with a different topic. Um, and that was because my supervisor, Alice, normally works in Botswana. And so I had planned to do some sort of like research there. Uh, so I was looking at animals that were like native to Botswana. But then as I was coming in, Botswana stopped having foreign researchers Okay. There. So a, a bunch of Alice's existing grad students kind of had to change and shift their programs where they couldn't do field work. But because I was just entering, I had written a different project about essentially like an- the welfare of wild animals that are being studied in um, like research situations, like how wild animals in the wild that are being like studied by ecologists or biologists and being followed around whether how their welfare is accounted for in terms of like the potential stress or the impact of being constantly watched. Right. Uh And then when Alice told me that she had this grant that could be for Botswana research that could be actually translated to a different country 
as long as it had to do with the ways that we sort of like govern animals and, and manage animals right. that I, I had suddenly like the world was my oyster in terms of I could basically like pick the animal and the place within reason where I wanted to go. Fantastic. So it was like, it was so amazing and so right. intimidating. <laughs> and I give her so much credit now looking back on being patient with me because I would come to her with a list being like, okay, so I've narrowed it, narrowed it down to like Swaziland, okay. Palau, like <laughs> Thailand and and Costa Rica. And Costa Rica was always on my short list when I was looking at places that had, were famous for sort of wildlife tourism and, right. and um, good practices with wildlife. It was actually um, these articles that came out in National Geographic in the December, the over the Christmas holidays of my first year that exposed um, that wildlife tourism and particularly ecotourism, which isn't really a regulated, it's not a globally regulated thing. So essentially right. any any tourism outfitter can call themselves ecotourism. Um, right. Yeah, that it, it's it's a huge it's a huge major issue right now yeah. in the industry that it's not regulated globally, and so the National Geographic uh, put out all these articles, and then last summer they came out with a special issue on wildlife tourism, reported on by Natasha Daly, um, and she looked a lot at wild animals in Thailand, Africa, Brazil, Russia, and I thought, you know what, this I, when I was narrowing down where I wanted to go, I realized that I would be kind of staking like your claim the, yeah yeah my claim and the land for the first time like my supervisor these were places my supervisor might not have necessarily been or had any research connections right. so it made sense to me to do Costa Rica so as I came towards that and I was studying for my comprehensive exams I had the opportunity to take a group of high school students with a company called Inside Global Education um, awesome yeah, it was fantastic. So that was the summer of 2018. I went there for a few weeks with a group of high school students doing ecotourism and volunteer work, and they were at wildlife sanctuaries. And I thought, and I went and I spoke to the managers and the owners there, and I said, do you have researchers like coming in? And they, and a lot of them said no. And that the more I kind of Googled it, I realized that it was this huge gray area that yeah. wildlife sanctuaries in Costa Rica are like the last hope for injured ill wildlife for former from for wildlife pets that are um, seized by the government. They're brought right. to sanctuaries and they well, operate as NGOs. And I think that's fa fantastic because when you mentioned in your overview that they have the special environmental laws in Costa Rica where no one can have a wild animal as a pet, which I think should be happening across the world, quite yeah, frankly. Certainly. Um, I mean, dogs and cats and goldfish are one thing, but uh, some of the other things, no. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so I think it does provide you with this novel thing about these sanctuaries, and um, and the sanctuaries being, as you mentioned, a couple of things. One to sort of help those that have been injured to get well enough to be able to be put back into the wild. Yes. Um, those that have had too much human contact, making sure that they're still safe, but in a nice sanctuary. And, I, and so when you say sanctuary, mm -hmm. um, I don't. It's not a zoo, is it? It is a natural environment with, you know, it's it's. It's a big space and it's a normal, it's normal vegetation and what they would be normally living in, but in a, in a, in a uh, protected area. Is that what you mean by sanctuary? So it's, it's really or confusing. It, um, it, it can be both. And it's something I'm still trying to work out. So technically there are three designations in Costa Rica. There's zoos, 
which often go by the name of sanctuary because they don't want to be associated with like what North Americans would think of as like a zoo, right? Because they are cages and stuff. Yeah, like these are sites that often are in the jungle. They're just the animals are in enclosures. So they're still in their natural environment. They're still surrounded by the natural environment. They're just in, you know, in caged enclosures that are usually the, all the sites I went to are huge and, and right. very great uh, and and outfitted with natural vegetation. And they, they experience rain naturally. They experience all the different climates. Right. So a lot of these sites go by sanctuary because they know that the word zoo is like very emotionally and ethically loaded for uh, tourists and sanctuary mm-hmm. better suits their outlook. Um, and then rescue centers are sites that only rehabilitate and rescue wildlife. And so some of these sanctuaries that are accepting animals have naturally also gotten the licensing to rehabilitate them. Because if if a a local person found a monkey on the side of the road that they're bringing to them, you know, if they can't, if they're just a sanctuary and they know that it's an animal that could probably be released, then they're going to have to transport it, which is a whole other ball of wax sort of (laughs) so it's easier to it's easier to just be able to kind of do both functions of keeping you know providing long-term lifelong care and also being able to release them um but yeah they they normally are in natural areas i mean costa rica i think like a third of the country is forest so it's hard not to you know except except for the major cities you're usually around some sort of like forest and and I don't know if you know this, but um, I'm assuming then Costa Rica also has laws to protect those forests, because that's one of the problems with um, animals these days is their their usual habitats are getting mm-hmm. smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm not as familiar with the laws of protection, but I know that a lot of um, forests that were originally privately owned, such as, for example, Manuel Antonio, which is the most visited um, rainforest park, I guess you, yeah, it's a national park. Essentially, it has like over a million visitors a year. It's highly monitored because there are populations of completely habituated capuchin monkeys and squirrel monkeys and raccoons and, and different mammals that will go through people's bags and take food. And now that research just came out last year that monkeys are now taking different scented objects like sunscreen and bug spray because like naturally in the environment, monkeys will grab scented things like uh, leaves that are natural bug repellents or have some sort of sensory thing. And rub it on themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So even like when you don't bring food, they still have the learned behavior of going through your bags. And actually it's like going to an amusement park when you go through the parks, uh, authorities will search the bags. Um, Now that was um, a park that was privately owned that is now like part of the National Park Services. I know that they've done a lot of reforestation because originally there had been mining and logging. I think the major the major conservation threat to animals worldwide is deforestation and yes monkeys are no exception there's 75% of species of primates are disappearing globally like that's a decline of you know 3 quarters and I think around half of neotropical monkeys so that's animals that are in um like South America Central America they are also declining and you know Costa Rican monkeys are are no exception even though they're not all listed on the IUCN database as like endangered. They they will be if we keep 
taking the habitat away. Yeah, that's what concerns me. Like, for example, howler monkeys are listed least concern. So you would, you know, if you haven't actually been there, you'd think like, oh, they're they're fine. They're doing okay. But then I go to sanctuaries that tell me they have 200 of them in a year that are just being electrocuted, you know, not even other situations. And that's one sanctuary out of potentially like hundreds around the country. So it's not a it's not a sustainable sort of natural decline in the population. So then how can tourists, because you're talking about tourist eco, ecotourism and things like that and wildlife. So how can tourists choose wildlife tourism attractions that are actually good for animals moving forward? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, Costa Rica has something like 3% of the world's biodiversity. Um, and one of the sort of double-edged swords of tourism, especially in, uh, you know, biodiverse developing countries, mm-hmm. is that they... You know, Costa Rica's entire economy depends on tourism. It's their number one income. But also promoting the tourism is, you know, can lead to further destruction of habitat, can lead to all different sorts of like diseases passed from humans to animals. So it's really tricky. So I'll like go more into the Costa Rican context because it is so specific in that you're not allowed to interact with animals legally. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so I'll kind of touch on that after, but the sort of general rules, I would say, is that you want to look to support wildlife sanctuaries. And I I wouldn't say chiefly, I would say that a lot of sanctuaries, it's kind of similar to ecotourism. Like it's a word that, you know, uh, people know. Buzzword. It's a buzzword. It's a buzzword, right? So not all sanctuaries are like regulated in certain ways. So what I would suggest is that if you want to go to a captive animal facility anywhere in the world, check out the the AZA. So that's the Association of, of Zoos and Aquariums. And that's something that is like a globally certified thing that will show you on a map which zoos globally have met the standards to have this sort of membership. And the sanctuary counterpart to that is the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. Now, the the sort of flip side of that is that in Costa Rica, there's only two sanctuaries that are accredited in the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, but uh-huh. I've been to eight. And of those eight, they're all they're all great sanctuaries. It's okay. it's not like it's not to say that any sanctuary or zoo that isn't a part of this accreditation is terrible. Right. Right. So it's something to take with a grain of salt, but that's like a good standard is looking at which ones are accredited because you know that they have been checked by like and audited by outside sources um, and experts. But what you want to look for is essentially any sanctuary that's providing close encounter contact with animals, such as like facilitating animal selfies. Yes. Where you're like taking a photo with with a wild animal. You should always be like at least you know, uh, depending on the type of animal, a meter plus, like you you could say, you know, sanctuaries in Costa Rica have a law that tourists have to be at least one meter away from the enclosure. And, you know, great apes, so gorillas, chimpanzees, and that sort of those sorts of animals that are, you know, highly dangerous to humans to be near, there's like requirements of being at least seven meters away, which is quite far. So you're not going to get necessarily a selfie if you see like, maybe just like a blurry chimp face in the background of the leaves. So you're trying to stay away from encounters where you're like closely interacting with animals. And that's not even necessarily research has shown that like close encounters with animals isn't necessarily an an inherent desire. It's not often a deal breaker for tourists. And that if you actually prime tourists and explain why, you know, and you can frame it for the good of the animal, you know, you don't want to pass on a disease or something to the animal, like even a common cold can kill, you know, a monkey. 
Or you can well, frame it for their own safety of that the animal is dangerous. Well, I think that's good. and But it comes down to the education piece, doesn't it? And, and mm-hmm. whether people are actually listen to the education piece, unfortunately. Yeah. So so what are the major factors endangering the monkey conservation in Costa Rica? Because you mentioned there's four types of main monkeys there. Mm-hmm. And, and some, some areas in Costa Rica have declining numbers. Yeah. So what are the major factors other than perhaps deforestation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... I would say that, you know, urbanization and deforestation are kind of like the overall umbrella that is, you know, driving these sorts of changes. But what I found was I looked at, uh, I went to four different sanctuaries that I, that gave me access to their, their records of the, of the monkeys coming in, um, right. that are being rescued. So I just, I went to like the base data as part of my, as part of my methods. And I, wrote down every time it was like howler monkey was found here electrocuted and I would mark that down and what I found was that I had about 365 which is a really funny like weird number to have yeah <laughs> 365 uh, monkey records and of that 25 percent were electrocution so and that's from from the the boundary lines is that why they were electrocuted so this is something that I, I really was hoping with, I, I was supposed to go back this summer and I really wanted right. to try and speak with people in the electrical company um, mm-hmm. called ICE, I-C-E. So th- my understanding is that they aren't mandated to have any sort of preventative. Or coverings and things coverings. over the wires. Yeah. So uh-huh. I've heard, I have to fact check this uh, from mm-hmm. my interviews. I've heard like potentially even 98% of the country has uninsulated electrical wires and transformers, Okay, okay. which is like very shocking, which is why I want to kind of, I want mm-hmm. background on that from the actual electrical company. But so they basically are like a responder to wildlife electrocution. So you have to kind of show that a certain area, like a transformer right. or something is a hot spot, and then they'll come and insulate it. And the funding for that usually comes from the sanctuary. So they not only have to raise money to, you know, feed their right. animals, mm-hmm. but also um, to change transformers to insulate them to change the wiring. And what I've noticed is that in the very rural parts of Costa Rica, such as in uh, the northern peninsula that borders Nicaragua, that was, I, th- I think it's probably the least developed region, at least that I've been to. And that's right. where you see, at least according to my data, the most electrocutions and usually howler monkeys, which is what concerns me because they're listed as least concern. But, but actually like thousands of them really probably across the country are dying just from electrocution. Well, yeah. it, seems, it seems strange though, because as a country that relies on ecotourism, mm-hmm that then they don't protect um, the animals appropriately. Yes, it's it's so really... It nat- so it should be a country cost, not an individual sanctuary cost. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not like a business strategist or anything like that. But one thing I was thinking was like, if, if there was a way to propose like a tourism tax or something like just even right. a few dollars, mm-hmm. there's millions of tourists coming in every year to fund the insulation of these electrical power lines because even monkeys aside you know there's like over 20 types of animals that will cross roads using power lines right so it's yep. it's even beyond monkeys like especially sloths and sloths are like the, oh, yes. the golden child right now of Costa Rica <laughs> <laughs> our images are everywhere they're kind of like in my mind they're like the new monkey I don't know if they were ever out of style or in style but right. 
there's sloth sanctuaries popping up everywhere now there. Um, it's a highly marketable animal and perhaps, you know, explaining that sloths are also electrocuted probably just as often as monkeys, although I'm not sure about their numbers. Maybe right. that would get more support for it. <laughs> I would hope it, that tourists care about both. It's a good study, though, to see how that would how would how that pans out. Yeah, anyone could basically take my entire project and just replace monkey with sloths and do yes. the same thing. <laughs> That's a good model then. Yeah. Uh, so the other, the other part you mentioned was, um, apart from the wires and things, is the cost of making the wires uh, more friendly for animals. But you said mm -hmm. about the, the costs for the sanctuaries for food. I'm assuming the food for those that have got the rehabilitation units, because shouldn't the sanctuary naturally provide food for these animals? Yeah, so that this is another thing that could be honestly, the more I do like research there, the more I see like, God, there's I need like five of myself to, or maybe <laughs> I need to just become a professor with students. Maybe that's yeah, how it works. Have your own lab. There you go. <laughs> have my own lab. Like, there's so much, there's so much uh, potential. Uh, the, the sanctuaries, my understanding is that they don't have a nutritional protocol given to them, but that there's been one in the works for some number of years. But okay. because so many of them operate as NGOs, they work off of. Uh, food donations. So they'll get like local vendors and stuff to donate or they'll purchase uh, fruit off of them. So, okay. you know, all four species of monkeys have their own sort of like natural diet. And it's the task of sanctuaries in the absence of, you know, nutritional protocols coming from the Ministry of the Environment um, that are, I, I suppose, in progress, that a lot of the food that they're receiving will be like fruits and vegetables. And maybe, you know, a wildlife nutritionist will say, oh, there's too much sugar to a natural diet. But the reality of sanctuaries is that there's no one really to go like forage in the in the jungle. And, you know, they'll send out volunteers yeah. sometimes and, you know, the to grab, you know, palm leaves and different natural occurring foods and fruits. But, you know, if they're getting specialty items like fish or uh, chicken or those sorts of things, they're coming from from vendors and from supermarkets, I find. So right. it's, it's a really difficult task. And it's something that's hard to be critical of, especially as an outsider, because they're operating as NGOs. And often, like one sanctuary owner told me, like, you don't go into this to like make money. Um, it's like, right. essentially, he called it like a money pit, basically. Um, most sanctuaries are just trying to break even. So it's something that I think nutritional protocol could be improved, but also it'd have to be through collaboration with some something in the community or with the conservation groups um, where that where they could get, you know, one of the 30 types of leaves that a howler monkey will eat. It's right. it's not so easily done, especially when these sanctuaries often operate on the backs of like volunteers, yes. oftentimes who don't have, you know, the training to know, you know, what to what to forge for, what where to go find certain things. Yes. It's a really hard balance, but yeah. you'd like to think at least this way they've got a better chance of living what we would call a normal life for that particular species. Yes, it's and eating the right things because I'm I'm a big thing. I, I know even in my backyard, which is no, it's very different. I could easily go and get stuff for the squirrels and the chipmunks and things. But there's mm -hmm. enough acorns falling off the trees, which they which is their normal food. So exactly. I shouldn't be providing extra stuff for them because that's <laughs> making them little piggies. <laughs> so I, well, it's, it's, it's not necessarily good for their own health. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that. There's two major. I would say conservation campaigns in the country 
Uh, one is the wildlife selfies. So the Institute of Costa Rican Tourism had just put out a, a campaign, Stop Animal Selfies, where, where they're encouraging people to take photos with like stuffed monkeys and stuffed sloths when they go to to uh, encounter animals. And even though it's illegal to feed wildlife there, um, there are sometimes underground tourism opportunities such as mangrove tours where they'll take you on a boat and monkeys will just happen to come on board the boat and like onto your shoulders but of right. course it's because they've been conditioned yes to come or um they've i've probably been enticed by the that crew yeah exactly or um i actually went to go see this it made me feel a little bit like an investigative reporter um <laughs> so i was like oh should i wear a fedora is that too conspicuous <laughs> Um, <laughs> I had, yeah, I had heard about restaurants that would put up wildlife bridges. So this is a rope that goes that goes across a fragmented habitat. So that could just be essentially a rope across a road so that monkeys and, and animals will go on the rope instead of the electrical wires. This right. is a conservation strategy done throughout the country, often by sanctuaries. And I've heard about restaurants in certain kind of tourist towns putting ropes from the forest into their restaurant. So that um, the monkeys will like, and I, and I went, to, yeah, and I went to see this happen and, you know, they'll have 20 capuchin monkeys descend on a restaurant and right. the waiters will like pretend to shoo them away. And it's like this kind of charade, but it's also, it's just bizarre to see suddenly monkeys entering the restaurant and going on the tables and hanging from the ceiling, but it's entertaining. And I understand, you know, why. It's People. entertaining until someone gets hurt, and then the 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 thing that's going to get um is going to be pay for it are yep. the monkeys. Exactly. You know, they've. I talked to one of the waiters there, and I again, I was like, I was like, oh, like this is so funny. When how long has this been going on? Like trying not to give any air yes. that I was critical of it. And he goes, oh, <laughs> they've been coming for like over a decade at uh, dinner time. It's like they have right. a schedule to come to the restaurant because they know that they're going to get some sort of food. And so when I thought about that, I said, wow, how does that change the ecology in the area that animals exactly. are now going to an unnatural food source, let alone human food, not even you know, the eating bananas, which aren't even indigenous to Costa Rica and getting sugar right. overdoses. And then having too much close interaction with humans. Yes, I there's a lot of, you know, you'll hear stories if you go on like a guided tour of a, of a rainforest or of a national park, the rangers will tell you like, oh, someone sneezed on a squirrel monkey, and then the whole troop died in the next week. There's, and you know, these are our stories that are told to warn tourists of like how dangerous it is. Yeah. To, yeah. You know, they, they can give you um, different diseases and you can give it to them. And going to these parks, I've watched people bring their babies up to capuchin monkeys and Crank, and, and uh, push their like toddlers towards them. And I'm like, they're not, you know, you're not in a, even if you were in a zoo, I wouldn't do that. But no. you're in, you're in the wild. There's no one watching you. And that yeah. animal has canines and eats baby birds. Like you don't want to yeah. put your kid next to it. <laughs> well, we can be... Uh, as a human species, we can be pretty silly at times. Well, pretty stupid, actually, <laughs> yeah. at times. To be to be perfectly blunt. Yeah, no, so, it's true. <laughs> so, so it feels like Siobhan, you've got a lot of work ahead of you because, like you said, there's so many different directions that you can go. But also, with the work that you're doing, create a model for other countries to potentially use to check um, their various sanctuaries or conservation areas. Yeah, that that would be my like ultimate goal. And I, I think 
it's something that maybe it's my life's work. I don't know. But I, I, I went into my PH kind of naively thinking when I, once I had my Costa Rica project, oh, I'm going to connect all of the sanctuaries with each other because they, they tend to not communicate usually with maybe more than one or two. There's a lot of professional jealousy and defensiveness right. and, and protectiveness, which I do understand. You know, a lot of the sanctuaries were started by expats, a lot of expat women. Like I've only found two that are actually run by Costa Ricans. Okay. So most of them, I get the sense, were started by expats who just had re- were re- rehabilitating animals that they found injured. Like they'd find an injured monkey, they'd take it in and kind of doing it out of their homes or unofficially. And then when these legislations were passed in the last, I think, 10 or so years with all these strict environmental laws that if they were going to rehabilitate and keep captive wildlife, that they had to do it um, as zoos or rescue centers legally. A lot of these places converted. So there's decades old friendships and rivalries and a lot of like social dynamics that keep sanctuaries from communicating with each other, which I went into naively thinking, oh, everyone's going to like, surely we all have the same goal. Like everyone's going to be buddies. And it's like, oh no, this person doesn't talk to this person. And it's, it's navigating kind of a politics sort of thing. But I've created recently this year, the Costa Rican Monkey Interest Group, where I'm hoping to connect researchers. Uh, Right now, it's a lot of international researchers, uh, but as well with Costa Rican researchers and sanctuaries. And I'm hoping to help sanctuaries have access to research groups that can then collaborate with them. And I'm hoping that, yeah, it's something I I think is a lot more plausible for me to do. Like I've already started it um, this semester. And it's something I think I can start to build as I look towards the end of my PhD. And I hope that as a indirect result of that, sanctuaries will be put in contact with each other, because maybe they're working with the same groups, or they're all in the same, you know, they're all members of my, which again, was like a bit of a weird imposter syndrome to have them like, look at me, like creating an association, like. <laughs> but, what, but, but Siobhan, someone has to start it, right? And yeah. so it started from a, a, a PhD project. And now, who knows where it's going to go. But it's, it's also for a good cause. Yes. We can't lose these natural habitats. We can't lose these beautiful animals and things. So exactly. you know, you're, on the, you're on the right track there. So maybe you are the new Jane Goodall. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I can say, I've, I've met, I've met Siobhan. I've met her. <laughs> she was on my podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think just to end off, because, I mean, you've, you've given us some fascinating information and I'm sure a lot of people are very interested. And I'm glad you said that bit at the end about, you know, creating this new registry and things, because that's going to be vital. Yes. moving forward but in case you didn't know Siobhan is a lot of fun and she loves doing outdoor things and <laughs> as, as you can see and and I had a bit of a chuckle over the summer because as we know you know with COVID we're all kind of stuck inside a lot but it was <laughs> nice to go out and, and an opportunity to try new things so Siobhan decided she was going to try roller skating <laughs> and um with mixed success perhaps I should put it like that <laughs> Yes. What made you choose roller skating? You know what? It's I don't I don't think of myself as like a, a, a I am I guess I am athletic. I, I think I have like a thing from high school that I'm like, oh, I'm not athletic. Like blah blah blah. No, those are sports players because I've never really been into sports. But I I thought you know what? I'm like isolated here. I'm an only child that moved back with her parents during COVID. What the hell is there for me to do? Um, and I thought you know what? I'm gonna try roller skating. I'm gonna get a, the cheapest pair of skates I can. And if I'm not any good at it, then I didn't spend too much. 
And I actually, I guess everybody in the world had the same idea as me because all of a sudden, <laughs> roller skates have been sold out across North America <laughs> until November. Like it became really popular on Instagram and different social media apps. Um, and now it's like everyone wanted to start roller skating. And now I found like a Toronto kind of group and we'll skate together. But I, you, you mentioned that I had mixed success because yes. I very, it's just so ridiculous. I was just skating around off of the sidewalk and I was going too fast and because I'm such a novice I freaked myself out I said oh my god I'm gonna fall and I did fall I fell on my I like took all of my body weight on the palm of my hand and it ended up breaking my elbow um and I was out for two months and what frustrates me was that was just me stepping off of the sidewalk when I went, <laughs> when I skated downtown Toronto nothing when I went to like a park and tried going on ramps nothing so because it was such a mundane thing now I'm like it was embarrassing I'm, yeah I'm petrified <laughs> of sidewalks now and I I'm also mad at myself because I always wondered like I wonder how it feels to like really break a bone and yeah. now I'm like now okay now the regular bones you broke something quite crucial oh yeah, I, I had a full arm splint. I like couldn't type properly for like over a month. It was, Which yeah. not good for, for someone trying to write part of their dissertation. <laughs> right. My, my, my field season was canceled. All I had to do this summer was write and I break my arm for two months of it. That's so great. Yeah. <laughs> but, at least, but at least you can laugh about it. And Siobhan actually sent us in a really good photo. Little, little fashion, you know, you still have a fashion sense with a broken arm. <laughs> I think that's the only time I was ever out of pajamas in the last five months. So I'm glad it's memorialized. You see, you see everyone, we can still have a lot of fun. I know times are a bit awkward right now, but there's still plenty of ways to have a good laugh. And I think that's important for us all to remember is not to take things too seriously. We've got to have some fun as well. Exactly. Although, still listen to the things that we have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Siobhan it's been great chatting with you oh, thank you, you so well. much for coming on and actually maybe you should come on another time towards the end when you when you finish all your stuff or maybe even when you've graduated and things and come and let us know how things have been going I would love to do that it'd be great to you know have <laughs> have some facts to share at the end of everything because I'm still well, I f still feel like I'm in the thick of it even though I guess I did say a lot <laughs> well, you did say a lot but you've you've posed a lot of good questions and things for us all to consider right I mean mm -hmm. uh, and showing the kind of things you need to think about when you are putting together a research project uh, and it wasn't like you said it wasn't necessarily what you were thinking of doing in the first place but out of circumstances this is yep. where you've ended up and now you've got a passion for it exactly you know it was great like the journey always respect the journey you went on even though I was like pulling on my hair trying to figure out where to go and what to do because yeah. I was I'm interested in everything which is both great and also a bit of <laughs> sometimes <laughs> difficult because I can never really find focus because everything interests me but right. I'm I'm really glad through all these like series of, of connections and, and things that I, I ended up doing research in Costa Rica because the folks there, the Costa Ricans who are called Ticos uh, colloquially okay. are the best people I've ever met. Truly well, the most incredible. You're, you're the right person to be going there and, and chatting and trying to get these things together because you've got the right attitude there, Siobhan. So I wish <laughs> you the best of luck with it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Now, don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.